Wow, it is special to get up and uh, and preach after hearing uh, you worship like that. I love that song. It's my favorite. It's my favorite worship song. It's been my favorite about, for about two years now, and uh, I love the testimony. It reminds us of the verse that says, "Surely the goodness of the Lord uh, shall follow us all the days of our life, and uh, we'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever." And it says, "Surely the goodness of God is running after us." And uh, all my life, he's been faithful. I've just seen it time and time again, seen the testimony of the goodness of God. I am so excited about uh, what I'm going to preach with you tonight. I will tell you, it is, it's very different from anything I've preached. In fact, it's almost a little bit more like a teaching um, message than a preaching message, although there will be some applications. I'm feeling a weird sound. Is it me or is it we're, we're good? It might be me. I need, might need to get this closer. Sorry. All right. I'll just let you guys work on that. It should be fine. Um, so it's going to be a little bit of like a, a teaching style tonight. I will tell you that's slightly intimidating. Um, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And, uh, and what I mean by that is um, I finished my bachelor's and I was like, yes, I have arrived. I know so much. And then I went through a process of continuing to learn and was able to get my master's of divinity about uh, 10 years ago. And when I did that, I was like, what that taught me is, um, wow, I really had no clue what I thought I knew. I had no clue. I had no clue what I was talking about is kind of what I felt after I finished my master's. Um, The Lord blessed me with the opportunity to pursue Um, my terminal degree, and I got that uh, two years ago. And I say that um, when I finished my um, doctorate of ministry, I said, now I feel like nobody has a clue what they're talking about. So you go through this season where you just kind of realize that the more you know, the more you don't know. That being said, I do know that I'm going to share a lot of scripture tonight, that there are many of you that know a lot about this passage. But I want to ask for an extra measure of grace because I know that there are other people that they don't know this, all right? So I don't want to get extremely deep because I don't want to go so deep that I lose half of the room, but I also um, want to just take something that I think there is, there's a good chance that there's passages that we're going to look at tonight that you either didn't know or didn't realize that were in Scripture. I will tell you um, tonight, the, the title of our message, is it up on the screen? Yes, Jesus, our only hope in times of terror um, I've lived through terror a few times in my life. We think back at 9-11, and you remember where you were, what you were going through, until I realized that I have a, I have a staff member on my staff who wasn't alive um, on 9-11, and that kind of like boggles my mind um, that, yikes, I have adults. How many of you were not alive at 9-11? Anybody? Yeah? Yeah, I, mean, I see that. Nevaeh, I see you over there. Yeah, hands. Yeah, there's a lot of you, and that's a little bit um, of a, a rem- reminder um, that... Uh, we gained an understanding of things going through moments of terror like that. I will tell you, there's been many, many comparisons to what took place in Israel uh, last Saturday uh, in comparing that to the same kind of terror that they have experienced. I'll tell you, um, I'm not a uh, scholar on what has taken place, but I do know that when you, um, I heard a, a great speaker speak on the subject and they said, if you compare the population of America to the lives lost on 9-11 to the population of Israel and the lives lost on this day, two Saturdays ago, they had 10 times the amount of deaths per capita for their population than we experienced on 
Um, that's shocking. That puts things in a whole new perspective for me. I had no idea um, that level of, of fear and of terror. I will tell you that the more that I've studied this subject over the last probably I don't, week and a half or so, I have actually um, been shocked at how little I really did know and how much that I thought that I knew that was actually very inaccurate. Um, I will say there is a strong tendency and temptation to even go into um, a, a political conversation because we are dealing with a nation and other nations and there are political um, engagements and encounters between all these different nations. You can't help in some context but be political. But that is not my desire tonight. I'm going to do everything I can to literally show you how amazingly biblical what we are witnessing is. And I, I guess in my mind, I want this to be a testimony of kind of a spiritual reality check. A lot of times we keep our worlds separate. We keep our world of when we turn on the news and we see the bad things or whatever, like, okay, yes, that's the crazy world we live in. Now we've got to go to church and like pretend to be all spiritual and this and that. But the reality is all of these things are connected. And when we read the word of God, especially in light of the news that we've seen in regards to Israel and Hamas and Palestine and all of those things that have taken place recently, um, I believe it just puts an entirely new, fresh um, awareness of what the Bible teaches us. And so I do want to finally get to my notes, and then we're going to jump through this tonight. And uh, I believe that the Lord is going to just reveal some really interesting things. I want to start off tonight in Joshua chapter 5. And uh, it's interesting that I'm going to Joshua. It has nothing to do with anything I've said yet, but there is something that I shared yesterday that was incredibly practical and applicable to what we're talking about tonight. Um, Joshua chapter 5, we're going to first look at verses 13 through 15. And uh, this is a question that was asked after the battle of Jericho. You see Joshua fight or come to this situation where he is in this context of conversation with the angel of the Lord, all right? And uh, it's a powerful passage. Will you please stand with me tonight as we read this verse, these verses? Joshua chapter 6, verses 13 through 15 says this, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him, with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him, and said unto him, Are thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay. That's interesting. You don't ask an either or question and get an answer of no. Um, but Joshua said, Hey, are you on our side or are you on their side? And the answer from this man was, No. You're asking the wrong question. And it goes on and it says this. But as a captain of the host of the Lord, am I now come? I have come because I'm the captain of this war. I'm the one who's in charge here. And Joshua responded by falling on his face to the earth and did worship him and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy, loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place where I'm now standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What does that have to do with Israel and Palestine and Hamas and all of that? Here's what it has to do with. 
um, there is a tension in this whole conversation to say, whose side are we on? And the very clear, strong, passionate response that we need to have is that we are on Jesus' side. That's the side we're going to take every time is Jesus' side. So whatever Jesus is doing, that's what I want to be a part of. And I'm not going to take sides unless it is the side of Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to look into your word tonight. I pray that it will give clarity. God, most of all, I pray that your word will give us hope. And it will remind us that even in times of terror, you have a purpose and you are working out your great plan. God, I pray that tonight as we look into your word, that you will um, keep our hearts in tune, help us to take notes, help us to learn, find things that we didn't know or even understand. And God, I pray that all of these things that we look at will give clarity and understanding that you are a sovereign and powerful God, that you are good, that you love us and you want us to love and serve you. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So I have a unique illustration and I'm sorry, a unique um, outline tonight. And that is my first point is this. What does the Bible teach us about the history of this conflict in the Middle East? What does the Bible teach us about the history of this conflict in the Middle East? It's a wild thing. I'm telling you, 2,000 years ago, when they were writing the New Testament, they were saying, oh man, this war is going crazy. Even today, these people have lost their minds and they're fighting like crazy. That was 2,000 years ago. And then you go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, and we are going to see where this conflict began, where the conflict began. So first of all, you guys all know about Abraham. In fact, whenever I give a summary of the book of Genesis, if I'm explaining, I think I said this one or two of the times that I've come here. When I look at the book of Genesis, the easiest way to understand the book of Genesis is to say creation, fall, flood, Babel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. All right. I, it kind of rolls off my tongue. I love it. But it gives you a summary of the whole book of Genesis, creation, fall, flood, Babel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. The lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph is very important because it's the beginning of when God makes a covenant with his people. And that covenant is found in the book of Genesis. And the covenant is made whenever Abraham is 75 years old. As we go through the night tonight, I'm just going to throw out little, little just snidbits of what the Lord kind of shares with me. And you know what I love about that? I don't know. We kind of feel like we're done at 75, like we've done everything there is to do. I'm glad I'm getting a no from you right there, Judy, right? Judy, she's like, I ain't done. Oh, come on now. Listen, we ain't done either. God is just beginning the work of explaining his covenant in the life of Abraham at 75. And we see some wild things happen in the life of Abraham over the next 25 and beyond years. And so we're going to look at those. But if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, there will be a lot of turning. I, I just encourage you, um, as I go through my Bible, I've just got highlights and notes and things written and marked up. If you mark up your Bibles, I'd encourage you to just take a, a highlighter or a pen and just point out little things here and there. You may even pull out a credit card and just underline a verse or something like that. Because there are some verses here that even if you don't get past it today, it'll be nice to go back later on and to remember these things. Genesis chapter 12, we begin to see the first covenant made there. And it says here in verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house 
unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I've preached this passage many, many times, but I've never preached it like I am tonight because normally I talk about how wild it is that Abraham and his entire family, his entire um, context of life, everything from his animals to his land, to his property, to his relationships, his business dealings, everything has been here for 75 years. And God says, hey, get up and go. And I'm not going to tell you where. I'm just going to tell you to go in that direction and I'll tell you when to stop. And what I love about it is the very next verse for So Abraham departed. Wow. Oh, may that be our testimony. When God says, get up and go, even when it's crazy, because this would have been crazy, we obey. We obey quickly, sweetly, completely. We get up and we do it. We just do whatever we're supposed to do. Listen, as we go on here, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, highlights a very interesting thing that if you read through this passage, you just go right past it, like we we just did. Maybe even you did. Look at this. Now the Lord, verse one. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. So he's saying, you're going to leave your people. You're going to leave your context. You're going to leave all your country, your aunt, like all this stuff. And you're going to go to a land, a specific place. What's incredible about this is God's plan with this covenant was not just a covenant to say, you're my chosen people, but it was very clearly connected to say, you are my chosen people and you have been given a chosen land. Okay. That's the promise. The promise is connected to land. All right. Which you say, okay, what's the point of that? Well, guess what? The greatest fight of the history of our world is and always has been and will be until the end of time over a piece of land. It's over a piece of land. You know what took place last Saturday with the Hamas and all that? It's a fight over the land. They're upset. And, 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 and I understand. You can go through deeper things saying, no, actually, it's a fight because they want to all the people off of the face of the earth. Yes, that's true. But they want them off the face of the earth largely in part because they took their land and they're mad about it. And they've been mad about it for through all of history. Like, get off our land. This is our people. Um, just little things that are just fascinating. I learned this week that America was the first country to support whenever they became a nation back in the 1940s. And when that took place, that's why the hatred that took place then for Israel also got connected to America. Which is why... Oftentimes, terrorism is connected to saying we hate Israel and we hate America. I never knew what those connections were. Why is there such a strong connection? It's because America has been an ally. The beauty of that is because America has followed the principles of Scripture that tell us to stand for for Israel. And so as we go through this, we're going to find some other things. Don't take one part and separate it. Listen to the whole night. It's going to come together in a really powerful way. Anyway, listen, the most critical parts of the Israeli and Palestinian conflict is about the land and who the land belongs to. Both lay claim to the land, not merely because of a historical presence, but because of divine rights. You need to understand what that means. They're not saying I was here first. They are both sides are complaining that God gave us this land. That's what happens there. It's a fascinating thing. We're going to keep looking at it. Look over at Genesis chapter 15. As you go to Genesis chapter 15, you see in verse 18, it says this. 
In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. Once again, there's a covenant that's directly connected to a land. And it says, I've given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. It goes on and gives some descriptions there. If you just simply type in that description on Google or something like that, it pulls up the promised land. It pulls up Canaan. It pulls up everything that you're seeing in the news today. All the stuff that you see whenever it pulls up and says, okay, you've got um, Gaza over here and they're throwing bombs into this area of Israel and back and forth, all these things are happening. It is the same land that we're talking about in this passage here in Genesis 15, verse 18. My next point I want to share with you tonight is that Sarah and Abraham are given this promise. The promise is that God is going to bless them with a child. Um, But here's the problem. They take God's promise and they decide that God is not going to be able to fulfill his promise. So they will help him with his promise. I want to make sure this is clear. So quick summary in case you got disconnected. God made a promise to Abraham, said, hey, I'm going to give you a son when he was 75. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you land and you and your children will be my descendants. I will bless you. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. I, you will be the father of many nations and I have great things in store for your nation. By the way, Jesus. Okay. I mean, it's an incredible picture that we see here. And so I have great things in store for your people. It's going to be amazing. Trust me on this. And then he also gives some stipulation of here's what you need to do in response to this covenant. All right. So it goes on and you see in this passage, that's when he was 75 years old. Well, 20 years pass. I think it's actually probably, okay, I'm sorry. Let me, let me look at the exact numbers here. Um, uh, 80, um, I'm, I'm so sorry. So let's look at 16. I'm going to look real quickly at chapter 16. I know this stuff. I just got to find the number here. In chapter 16, it says, now Sarah, Abraham's wife, bear him no children. What? The years are ticking. I mean, we were 75 when we got the news and we are getting older by the year. And it says here in this first chapter, 16, verse one, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. Um, When I read the Bible, I just kind of have fun moments where I go, dun, dun, dun. (laughs) This is not going to be pretty. Okay, I'm just telling you. What is going on here? It says in verse 2, And Sarai said unto Abraham, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go into my maid, and it may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Um, I preached on this passage. Like, what in the world? There is just, this is a wild context. That they, hey, we think that this will just work out. Um, I'm just telling you, I don't think this is going to happen in your home, but if this ever gets proposed in any context, you say, no way, Jose, okay? We are not doing anything like that because you can see the destruction that has taken place for all of history because of this one bad moment where she says, hey, why don't you go have a baby with my um, handmaid instead of me? And it goes through this process. We're going to keep it there. You guys can fill in the details. But as you go on there, it says in verse three, and Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abraham had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan, and he gave her to her husband, Abraham, to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. Hello, it sounds like an issue of Jerry Springer. We knew this was going to happen, all right? They're not going to get along when she has the baby that that Sarah never could have. This is not going to work. 
And so it goes on and it says in verse 5, And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I'm sorry, it's not you, it's me. I don't know what I was thinking when this happened. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge me between me and thee. And it goes through this beginning source of drama that is first between Abram and Sarah and Hagar. Well, guess what? You know what happens in our lives? Oftentimes the drama that starts with us gets passed down to our kids. By the way, parents, be wise. Don't go on complaining about all the things that you're miserable and frustrated about in front of your kids. By the way, parents, don't gossip in front of your children. Don't do it. You're teaching them to be gossips. By the way, parents, don't complain and, and uh, I don't know, question and challenge authority. Do that in private. Do that in, according to Matthew 18 with the people that it should be involved in. But don't spread those things down to generation to generation to other people. It happens here in this passage. It's a wild thing because what happens is you see this. The Ishmael is born in chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. But look down at verse 7. If you look down at verse 7, it says here, And the angel of the Lord... Okay, I'm sorry, I, I forgot this. Let me say this one phrase without reading all of it to save my voice. Um, the baby is born. Sarah is ticked off about it. She casts her out. She says, uh, you're going to have to hit the road. You, are, you and your child are not staying in my house. So they get cast out. And it says in verse 7, The angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness. This is Hagar. By the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar... Sarai's maid, whence camest thou, and whither shalt, wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Listen, this is wild. This is talk- I'm just going to make it clear for you so you know, so you don't get bored. We're talking about Ishmael, okay? The son that came before Isaac. And it says here in this passage, Verse 11, and the angel of the Lord said unto her, behold, thou art with child and you shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Verse 12 says, and he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Yikes. That is not the kind of um, baby shower you want to have, okay? Like, just practically speaking, you don't want somebody to get up and say, let me tell you about your baby that you're going to have. It's going to be a wild child, and they're going to hate everyone, and everyone's going to hate them. But name him Ishmael, and go on, have a good time. I mean, it's just kind of an interesting scenario there. And you also have to understand cultural context that they probably didn't have baby showers and announced information like that. So we are in a different culture, but that is the truth of what happened regardless. As it goes on, we see that the covenant is explained again when Abraham is 99 years old. Look over at chapter 17. And in chapter 17, by the way, if you are paying attention, we've been now in chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17. A huge part of Genesis is all about these promises and what God is doing through this covenant and through these two children that will be born. So it goes on and it says this when he was 99 years old, um, Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and I will multiply thee exceedingly. By the way, no joke, he multiplied him exceedingly. To this day, we see like, I mean, to trace the DNA back, if he did the, um, what's the DNA stuff called? What is it? 
Yeah, Ancestry.com stuff like this. Everybody's going to be connected. To, like, not every, not us. We wish. But, I mean, there's a lot of connections to maybe you. I'm sorry, not me. I'm, yeah. Anyway, sorry. ADH Lee. Okay, ADH Lee. Sorry. We're back on track. Verse 3 says here, And Abraham fell on his, fa- um, uh, Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations I've made thee. Over and over he says this. It says in verse 6, And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee. The kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed, and thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. I get it. It's, it just bear with me. We're moving. We'll, I'll come back and talk through a little bit of it. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee a land wherein thou art a stranger and all the land Canaan for everlasting possession. I will be their God. As it goes on and continues, you see that the land, once again, the land is directly connected to the promise. Now listen, Abraham is 100 years old. And then we turn over to Genesis chapter 21. We're almost done with the deep reading and all of that. And we'll get to some other application. In Genesis chapter 21, we see in verses 1 through 3 that finally, well, let's just read it. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age. At the time of which God had spoken to him, and Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, who Sarah bare to him, Isaac. Verse 5, and Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac, his son, was born unto him. Okay, so finally the son of promise came, but because they took matters into their own hands, there were a lot of other problems. So backtrack in case I lost you here. Let me come back and do a quick summary. And that is you have Abraham. God promised that he's going to have a, a son who's going to be the child of promise. He's going to have many, many nations. They wait a decade or more, go through this season of time, and then they find out, okay, he hasn't come. I'll just go have a child with, Ish, with Hagar, and we'll call him Ishmael. Literally in this passage, I don't remember where the verse is, but he goes to God whenever God reminds him, and he says, hey, God, did you forget about Ishmael? Let's just use him. I don't need to have another baby. Let's just use Ishmael, which that's ironic in and of its own. And God says, no, we will not use the child of bondage. We will use the child of promise for what I want to accomplish. And so long story short, you go through all of that, and you see something that is pretty fascinating fascinating to me in verses 9 and 10 in chapter 21. Chapter 21, verses 9 and 10. Look at this with me. Here's what it says. And Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. Okay. Um, I'm pretty confident this is the first conflict between Israel and between Isaac and Ishmael, we'll say that. Okay, it's the very first content in my mind. I know you know me. I'm silly, but I literally saw Ishmael kind of like stick his tongue out at um, at Isaac or at at Sarah, and it has all you get is the word mocking. We don't know what mocking means, but there is a clear context that in this verse. Ishmael looks over at Isaac and does something to show mocking. And as a result of that, she kicks him out. Hagar says, I'm sorry, Sarah says, I want him gone. Read verse 10 real quickly. It says here, wherefore she said unto Abraham, cast out the bondwoman and her son for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. I don't even want him around him. Get him out of here. He's gone. 
So it goes on and it says here, um, I'm almost done with the context of the history here. So if I bored you to death, I appreciate you sticking around. It's worth it because we're going to really pull some neat things when we come back around. But you see in Genesis chapter 21 verses 14 through 20 that Ishmael is cast out. I'm going to read this passage and it should be my last large passage of reading. That is, it says in verse 14, And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and he took bread and a bottle of water, and he gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Verse 15, And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went out, verse 16, and sat her down over against him a good way off, as it were a bow shot. For she said, let, him, let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lifted up her voice and wept. Let me pause there for a moment. Oh my goodness. We know the terror and the horror and the wars that have existed throughout the entire history of the world in regards to these two nations. And literally, the father of one side of those nations was out of water, was cast under a bush, and the mom walked away saying, I don't want to see him die. I know he's going to die. Do you understand that Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, traces his lineage back to Ishmael? He, that's, that's what he claims. There's all kinds of debate as to whether or not it's true. But he goes back and he says, no, I am the, of the lineage of Ishmael. And you see this incredible world that we live in. I mean, just consider this. The two greatest religions in the world are Islam and Christianity. And you have both of these religions that come all the way back to these two young men who, were, who had been born under unbelievable context with unbelievable promise. And you say, promise? Only, only one was born of promise. Yes, but God in his unique plan of grace and sovereignty chose to allow the same blessings of multiplying and of kingdoms and of nations to also come through Ishmael. And so it's, it's wild to track, and there's a lot of debate about those things. In fact, we just say it's incredibly complex, but it is no doubt that Ishmael went on to have many children that are directly connected to Arab descent. And so you go through this whole context of, wow, in the Middle East, you have many, many, many people, and their direct lineage goes straight back to Isaac, straight back to Ishmael. And they started fighting all the way back here as soon as Isaac was weaned from his mother all the way to this very day. There are bombs going off. <laughs> that's, that's wild, okay? Um, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? That's the history of the conflict. I'm not going to go too much into the modern history of the conflict. If you're um, like excited about it, I'd love to talk about it afterwards. I just don't, I think it takes me in an in a, area where I don't want to go into too much of a political context now. I want to keep it spiritual. And so that being said, there are a lot of fascinating things. There are fascinating things. I'll just say even this one thing, that it is a well-known thing that, um, that the Palestinians, not the ones that want to be at peace with Israel, but the ones that, that are, want to be at war against Israel, they have said there will never be peace 
we will never negotiate and we will never share land. Like we will, these, this will never happen. And so it's wild when you start to see some of those things and how they have carried out all the way through history to our world today. What does the Bible teach us about the history of this conflict? There's a little bit more, but I'm going to save that until the end. That is the book of Genesis. A large part of Genesis teaches us about the formation of, the, of Father Abraham, who had many sons. All right, do you get that? Remember that song we used to sing? So you go through this, and we sing about that. By the way, there is a wild parallel to salvation here that applies in everything we're going to look at. We'll talk about that in just a second as well. Number one, what does the Bible teach us about our history in this conflict of the Middle East? There is a summary all the way from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through 21 and beyond. At that point, we see Ishmael cast out and you go on and you follow the line. Later on, you see battles that come back and you can trace the lineage of many of those battles back to the different armies that are coming back and that are warring with the Israelites all through that process. So the second point I have for you tonight is this. What is our responsibility in the midst of this conflict? What's our responsibility in the midst of this conflict? Um, <laughs> it's kind of like, I don't know, ignore it because we live on the other side of the world and it's just kind of like on the news. So if I just don't watch the news and it really doesn't matter. No, no, we as Christians, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. And I will tell you that a few of these things are simple and you're going to be like, I know you've already said that. And I have already said this, but let's just stick with the things we know. Number one, this morning we talked about the great commandment and the second commandment. The great commandment is to love God. You know what? When I think of loving God, I think of this. I need to love God's word and I need to love God's truth. All right. That means if I am going to be responsible and and trying to understand what is happening in the world, I need to make sure that I'm lining up everything I read in here, everything I see according to God's word. And I'm telling you now more than ever, there are things that are happening. There's things that are happening where right now you can watch the news. I'll just say this. And all of a sudden, if we find that Russia attacks Israel, then it's literally like buckle up because there are things that are in Ecclesia. I'm sorry, in um, uh, 38 and 39, what is it? Ezekiel 38, like there are chapters in the verse that in, in the word of God that talk about countries that are attacking in different places and it's like, oh, this is getting real, this is getting wild when you look at the prophetic map and the prophetic timeline of all these things that are happening and we're in a place now where you're seeing even alignment of, and I don't, I don't want to go too deep, but where you see alignment of different groups of saying like, okay, well, I know that this country and this country are mad about this and they could easily jump on with them. It's wild to see all the things. But what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to love God, to love God's truth. I will also tell you this, in the midst of all those things happening, there we live in an age where there is more misinformation than there has ever been. I mean, it is terrifying. You can simply go on um, onto Twitter and like start reading through different things that are happening, and it seems like half of the comments say one thing and the other half say the exact opposite. And so I don't know about you, but I've been overwhelmed at what do I even believe? I don't even know which side to believe. I don't even know how to get back down to the foundation of truth so that I understand what's happening. Well, guess what I believe? You know what? Whatever the word says. So I'm going to take everything, even on the modern technology, the modern um, avenues of information, and I'm going to compare it to the truth of God's word. So when we say love God, you know what? It's easy. Just spend time with him. Take everything we see and put it in a filter of his word and make sure that we know what he is saying. In a world full of misinformation, focus on what you know to be true, and that is God's word. Number two, we need to not... Fear. I should have said that differently. 
Don't fear. Number, don't fear is number two. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21, verse 9. Luke chapter 21. I'm turning there as well. Let's get over there real quickly. Luke chapter 21, verse 9. It says this. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, what does it say there? Be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Listen, the point there is, listen, God is bigger than any kind of situation that you're going to see or face. His throne is above every single problem that you see on this earth. His throne is above it. He's looking down on it going, okay, I knew this would happen. I know this is going to happen. I'm going to move this here. I'm going to make this happen here for his ultimate plan. He is not down here worried. He is not scared. And he commands that we also are not to be terrified in the midst of all of the wars and all the commotion. So what's our responsibility in the midst of this conflict? Number one, love God. Love his truth, all right? Number two, don't fear in the midst of that. Do not be terrified. Number three, love people. Love people. Let me, let me explain this one. It's kind of interesting. This morning I said the first, com, uh, the first and the second commandment. Love God, love people. But I want to focus on the love people part here for a second. Turn with me over to Ephesians. No, you don't need to turn there. You know this verse, I'm sure. If you don't write it down, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says this. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Um, if I'm going to be real transparent, that's the hardest part about this. Is I want to keep going back to Joshua. I want to keep going back to Joshua. I stand there and go, okay, whose side am I supposed to be on? Am I on their side or am I on their side? If I'm on their side, then those people are bad and they're the enemy. If I'm on their side, then those people are bad and they're the enemy. I mean, all you got to do is watch 30 seconds of any of the news networks. And each one is making different people the enemy. Guess what? As hard as it is to process, the, the people are not the enemy. The people Jesus loves, and he died for the people. I, I just, I, I know that's not, it, it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult to process, but it's the truth. The truth is that Jesus loves the people. But there are spiritual, listen, that verse goes on and it says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Here's who we wrestle against, principalities, powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Our enemy is Satan. Our enemy is the devil and his work of destruction through these situations. Um, I will tell you, my, I, have, I, I can't give details. I have family. I have very, very close family that live in the Middle East. They've lived there for 10 years. And, uh, and in fact, two weeks, before, um, two weeks before the bombings, I've purchased plane tickets to take my entire family over to go see and spend a week with my family because my children have never grown up with some of their cousins. They've never seen their life over there. And so we want to go spend time in that part of the world with them. And it's kind of at a point now where I'm like, oh my goodness, am I even going to be able to go on this trip? It's kind of terrifying. But that's secondary. Here's the first thing I called up. I, I don't want to say who it is, so I'm just going to try to leave it vague. I hope I don't. If not, we'll have to like take this off the internet. Seriously. Um, but I, I called up this person and uh, was talking to them about some different things going on in, over there. And I said, well, this is what the news said. And they, they always say, Lee, please stop. Like that. That's not true. And I'm like, what? This is wild. And I said, well, but this is what you're over here. This is what I just heard. And she's like, I know, that's not true. And, and they, she will work through a process of thoughts to help me process things. And she's like, Lee, we have friends that are over here. And they are the sweetest, Christ-loving Arab people. The sweetest, Christ-loving Palestinian people. What? 
We think that Palestinian or Arab equals Muslim. Do you realize that it doesn't? That, that's why these are people. There are many people over there in that area that are even believers. They put their faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ. And yet it's easy for us to kind of fall into this categorization where we say, like, well, I'm on this side of the, of the political issue. And so they're wrong. And it's like, it's not that easy. These are people that Jesus loves and he has a plan for them. And so we don't want to find ourselves on one people group against another people group. We want to make sure that we are in the spiritual understanding, the spiritual realm of recognizing the spiritual warfare. So I will say, hey, you know what, it's my, my family member does not, uh, they do not seem too worried. Um, in fact, they said, Lee, yes, that was far more significant, but these things happen every single day and every single week all the time. It's like, and so they go through these things and just explaining a lot of those details. I will tell you this, they don't seem nervous, but I seem nervous for them. So if you want to pray for somebody over there, you can pray for my family. I'll tell you when we're not on the live stream more about that. But um, be praying for them. Pray. Uh, here's the thing. Love God. Don't fear. Love people. Recognize that this is a spiritual warfare. It's not, um, put it, it should not put people against people. We need to remember that Jesus loves all people. And then finally here is Psalm 122. What is our responsibility in the midst of this conflict? Our responsibility is to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Um, Maybe you've heard this. I've heard it many times in the last week. If you turn over to uh, Psalm 122. uh, Psalm 122, I'm going to find it real quickly and read it with you. Psalm 122 says this. We're going to read in verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Peace within thy walls and prosperity within thy places. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, Peace be within thee. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good. Verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's something we, it's a clear command. We know to do it. We know to do it. We don't fully understand all the details of who and who's here and who's there. I will say this, we do understand from what we looked at in the first half that Israel has been chosen for something special. They are God's chosen people. Um, and uh, that's, that's just a fascinating thing. It's, it is a mystery. There's a mystery to it that we don't know and we won't fully understand until we get to heaven. God, why did you choose one people that you would offer salvation to them first and then they would reject it and then you would allow the rest of us to have that salvation? It's fascinating, it's interesting, but that's what we see in this passage. What is our responsibility in the midst of conflict? Number one, love God. Number two, do not fear. Number three, love people. And number four, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Here's how I want to wrap this up today, tonight. What are the promises that God has given us hope through this conflict? How do we know that we are to have hope through this conflict? What are the promises? Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 uh, I hope you have this memorized. It's a great verse to memorize. It should be in your list. If not, Romans 1.16, here's what it says. It says, For I am not ashamed of the power of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. That's good stuff, huh? But it's not done yet. It does say, To the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. And so there is a clear rule. There's a, there's a plan that God had where he is going to offer 
um, salvation to the Jews. You know, it's also wild, and we won't get into this tonight either because it could go on to unbelievable levels of complexity, but all of the views around, um, around eschatology and the different positions that many, many people take on what's going to happen in the end of times, many of them factor down to which idea or which concept of how you're going to believe these different things fall into place. Um, and there are phenomenal men of God who have different perspectives of this on, all, on multiple different sides. This is not something that it's just clear and cut. It's kind of like, well, we don't know, so we're going to take this position, and these people think this, and these other people think this. Issues of dispensationalism and premillennialism and amillennialism, all those things are founded upon how you view the covenant given to Abraham in this passage. So what are the promises that God has given us hope? First of all, listen, here's what it is. Jesus may not have chosen us first, but he did choose us. Amen. Salvation is offered to us. We have the promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to continue on and turn in your Bibles real quickly to Luke chapter 21. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 21. This is a hair-raising chapter. Incredibly overwhelming as you read through this. You can see in uh, the title above 21 in my Bible says signs of the times in verse 5, but we're going to jump down to verse 10 through 11, Luke 21 verses 10 and 11, where it says this, then said he unto them, nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdoms and great earthquakes shall be in diverse places and famines and pestilence and fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. And it goes on to say, um, look down at verse 20 with me, please. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed about with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then it goes on and it says in verse 24, look quickly there, 24, it says, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down unto the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. We saw the desolation of Jerusalem back, way, way back uh, just shortly after um, 70 AD, I'm sorry, what is that 70 AD? There you go. And then you go on and you see this as it comes back and it gives us in verses 24 through 28. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, so they shall be led away captive in all nations. And Jerusalem will be trodden under their feet, verse 25. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and the earth, distress, nations, perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming for the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Listen, where's the verse that I want to get to? Here it is. Oh, verse 28. That's what I'm reading to. Read verse 28 and let this be the verse that comforts your heart tonight. It says, and when these things all begin to come to pass, then look up. Look up and lift your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. You know why we have hope? Because the crazier this world gets, the closer we are to seeing the return of Jesus. The scarier times get, the more things we don't understand. And it's like, man, I never dreamed that this kind of attacks or these kind of... We are not commanded to have terror. We're not commanded to have fear. We are commanded to have hope because hope is what we trust in Jesus Christ. Listen to this incredible quote. It says this... Um, uh, if you want the source to this, this is not mine. I would be happy to share with you. I just did not write down the source here, so I'd have to give it to you. It was a professor at a seminary. He wrote this, Terrorism through the eyes of faith. After anger, the next emotion that we experience, many of us feel in response to terrorism, is fear. As we experience and hear of more potential terrorist strategies, fear will proliferate. 
And after all, terrorism is the attempt to overthrow and to control others by instilling intense fear and terror into the hearts of minds and people. Fear is an emotion of distress in response to impending danger, pain, or evil. It actually helps enable us to become aware of these realities as well as to respond to them. Here's the thing. Fear is a natural emotion and one of God's good gifts to us. But fear also has many dangers. Most visibly, it is, has a sinister ability to immobilize or cause paralysis of actions. Have you ever been scared to death? You can't even respond. You don't even know what to do. You're having this like just hyperventilating or maybe just uh, some kind of a, a, an emotional response to that. Listen, it says that it causes immobilization and paralyzation. It often presents us of performing responsibilities and engaging new opportunities in life. Thus, there are parts of fear that need to be redeemed. And listen to this. We might think that the antidote to fear is courage, okay? Okay, in moments of terrible fear, I should just have courage, right? No, listen. Since it is a classical cardinal virtue, but the more appropriate Christian response to fear is actually hope. While courage tends to reside within our own natural proclivities and self-discipline, Hope is supernatural in its source and nature. For Christians, hope in perilous times is not ultimately in nation or military power or in our own ability to cope. Our hope is in a God who is ultimately in control. In the midst of terror and evil, Christians can have hope because we believe that God is nonetheless there turning human desecration into good. This is illustrated in Romans 8.28, which we say... We know, or, or which says, we know all things. Um, we know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Hope is a true reality because we can have confidence in the one beyond the immediate, finite, and sinful realities of this world. Therefore, in a trouble, dangerous world, it is the ultimate. I'm sorry, it is that ultimate hope that motivates us and sustains us. It's the hope that gets us through. It's the hope that carries us through. Hope is not, by the way, it's not a question. And hope does not mean, um, I think it may and it may not, but I kind of really desire that it would. That's not what hope means. Hope is a confident expectation that God will do what he says he's going to do. We're going to read one last verse, one, one verse together. You've been jumping all over tonight with me. I want to read this verse, and then I want um, Pastor Dan to come up and clean all this up for me. So uh, listen. <laughs> He can go through all the deeper stuff there that I don't want to touch. But I do want to share this with you. I was a 17-year-old boy doing my devotions one day, and I was blown away by my devotions. In fact, in my devotions that day, I felt God change the course of my life. I was reading in the book of Galatians. Will you turn with me to Galatians chapter 4? In Galatians chapter 4, I was reading, and... uh, For some reason, I was extremely familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac when I read this. I probably had read it recently or heard a message on it recently. And I was doing my devotions and I read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 22. We're going to read here, but I'm going to read it slow and I'm going to ask you, please engage and be be mindfully aware of what we're reading. It will, it changed the course of my life. And so I just hope that you'll stay aware of it as well. Galatians chapter 4 verse 22 says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. What was the name of the bondmaid? What was the name of the free woman? 
You guys know the story. Very good. Let's keep going. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. Hmm. We know that to be true because it was a fleshly decision to not trust God, to take matters into their own hands instead of waiting on God and provide a child of promise some other way instead of the way that God intended. So the child of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was born by promise. Isaac was the one that was promised. It goes on and it says in 24, which things are an allegory for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which generates to bondage, which is Agar. See, there was a promise. There was a promise to Ishmael that he would go on, that he would be connected. Listen to this in verse 25. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. <laughs> I remember reading this as a teenager going, what? This is wild right here. It's directly connected to, to the Arab nations, the Palestinian countries there. And it says, an answer to Jerusalem, which now is and is, is in the bondage with her children. Look down at verse 28. It says, now we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Oh, man. I think I read this during a time of tensions that were publicly made aware on the news. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, the Bible is saying that even right now they're fighting and it's literally on the news in front of me. Like this thing is lit. I felt like this is like a magical book. It's literally telling me what's happening right there in front of me. Now, we understand in proper hermeneutics and understanding that you don't take that to mean that it's happening today. You take that to mean it was happening the day that this was written. Okay, that's, that's the proper way to interpret this. But the reality is, it's happening today, folks. I mean, it is literally still going on. And it says here, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. You need to understand this. It's not literally telling us today to cast out um, a nation of people. It's, telling, it's focusing on the allegory. The allegory of saying, listen, you were born in bondage. It's a direct parallel. The picture of Israel and everything happening in Palestine is a direct parallel to our spiritual life. And that's what's incredible about this. Because as you study it, you realize I was born as a, as a child of bondage. I was born in sin. But Jesus Christ came and Jesus Christ through his promise, made me a child of his promise that he is the one that provided salvation. And it says, do not walk as one who is in bondage, but walk as one who is free. And that's an incredible thing to see and to recognize that the things we are seeing on the news each and every day right now are directly applicable, not only to the word of God, but applicable to our own spiritual life. And the question is, if you're living in bondage, then God has provided salvation for you and he has called you to be separated. He has offered you this same beautiful promise that we know came from Jesus Christ through the line of Isaac, the promised son. And it all comes back to whether or not we will trust and believe in Jesus Christ as our savior. So I know we went on a journey tonight. I've, I've preached here probably 20 times. I've never preached anything like this tonight. If you didn't like it, I appreciate your grace. There won't be another one like it. 
but there also is not a lot of context where there is a spiritual, biblical proportionate war that's happening on the other side of the world, and it is directly related to what we read in God's word. So I hope tonight that uh, I, don't, I don't expect you to sit here and be like, oh, Lord, my heart has changed tonight as a result of this. Here's what I would, I would hope you'd take away. The word is alive. The word of God is alive, and it is telling me more accurate information than what the news is. So I will go on here, and I will study this, and I will find out what God's purpose is for me and everything that I'm doing today and tomorrow and for the rest of my days. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the life that it gives, the clarity. God, I pray you'll help us to grow in our understanding. Help us to love people. Help us to trust you. Help us to walk in hope and help us to look up because we know you're coming again soon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.